1: and on Instagram and Twitter at BurnedByBooks. Let's start the show. In Angie Kim's second novel, Happiness Falls, Mia's father has gone missing. A stay at home dad of three children, one of whom, Eugene, has a syndrome that renders him nonverbal, his disappearance is a mystery with an impossible number of terrible possible conclusions. The search for their father will lead the family through a briar patch of painful discoveries about all that they never knew about their father's life at home with his neurodivergent son and his explorations into the relative nature of what we call happiness. Part detective story with the hyperverbal Mia narrating the twists and turns of her father's sudden disappearance Part inquiry into the meaning of linguistic communication and its relationship to our emotional lives and our connections to others, Happiness Falls makes its drama physical and metaphysical, verbal and emotional. It is a pandemic story about our time separated from others while being in uncomfortable and constant proximity to family. And as such, it proves what is called Jung in Korean the complex depth in history that draws siblings and a family together, no matter the circumstances. The novel attempts to brush up against the most difficult and lasting problem of human connection. How can we claim to understand and sympathize with even those closest to us when language consistently fails to describe the interiority that makes us fully alive and paradoxically less knowable? Told with the endless verbal dexterity of Mia's treatment of her world, Happiness Falls asks us to consider what is not narrated, Eugene's unspoken story, a life as full and complex as his sister's, but separated and abstracted from the tacit rules for who is allowed into the story of a family. Happiness Falls manages to rip along with the pace of a mystery while sparking in us philosophical questions that sit at the center of our very humanity. Happiness Falls was an instant New York Times bestseller. And she's debut novel, Miracle Creek, won the Edgar Award, the ITW Thriller Award and Strand Critics Award and the Pinkley Prize and was named recently one of the 100 best mysteries and thrillers of all time by time. One of Variety Magazine's inaugural 10 Storytellers to Watch, Angie has written for the New York Times Book Review, the Washington Post, Vogue, Glamour, and numerous literary journals. She lives in Northern Virginia with her family. Welcome to Burn by Books, Angie.
0: Hi, Chris. Thank you so much for having me. I love that description of the book, and I'm so excited to talk to you.
1: Thank you so much. This is a book that just has, it has worlds within worlds within it in ways I totally was not expecting, and I just enjoyed it so much and had, as I told you Previous to our recording, too many questions. So I'll get to some of them, but there are there are many that will remain for me and and for your readers, I'm sure.
0: Oh, thank you. Yeah, I can't. Let's let's dig in. I'm really, really excited.
1: Happiness Falls is a missing person story. Mia and John, siblings of Eugene, their non-speaking brother and their mother, each try to comprehend how and why their father has disappeared dropped out of his and their family's lives, leaving small mysterious traces of a separate intellectual experience that he shared only with Eugene. His disappearance prompts the family to investigate both their father's thought process in the lead up to his disappearance, but also their relationships to Eugene and to each other in terms of measurable happiness. Why did you decide to write a family novel wrapped up inside missing persons drama?
0: Oh, that is such a good question. Um, so this family is so special to me. Um, I started writing in my forties, and being a writer is actually my fifth career. And oh my gosh, <laughs> it's so fun. Um, I used to be a lawyer and in business and uh, an entrepreneur and a stay-at-home mom. And I started writing when um, some of my kids had some medical issues that I needed to sort of be able to express how, how I was feeling and work out and process. And so I found writing so cathartic. And one of the first short stories I ever wrote and got published was a magical realism story about this particular family living in Seoul, South Korea, based a little bit on my own family, extended family's experiences. And so, you know, it was one of these things where this family, and in particular, Nia, the narrator's voice, wouldn't leave me alone. And so when I started thinking about how to tell the the story of this family, particularly this father who is obsessed with um, ideas about happiness and how to quantify and maximize happiness, as well as this youngest mem- member of the family, Eugene, who is non-speaking and how he um, fits into this family that's a particularly verbal family with a mother who has a PhD in linguistics and, you know, uh, a very, uh, as you put it, verbally dexterous, Mia as, you know, his older sister So all of those things kind of came together into this plot of the father who is missing and Mia, who is um, kind of on the sidelines and having to deal with that and reeling with it, having to make these discoveries about the father and about her little brother and taking the readers on the journey of discovery about her family in the same way that the readers will hopefully get to know throughout the story.
1: Mia is our primary narrative voice. She makes sense as a narrator because she's so hyperverbal. She is also, importantly, hyperanalytical. Mm-hmm. As, much, as much as any police officer in the book, Mia seems to me to be the detective. Her ability to draw every small action into a web of clues, to be analyzed uh, on their way to deduction. Do you think of her as a detective in the novel and the ways in which her her powers of analysis make her the sort of perfect, uh, perfect person to be that kind of voice?
0: You know, it's so funny that you say that because I didn't until I saw my publisher and my editor's write-up and categorization of this as, you know, part literary fiction and part coming of age and part you know, amateur sleuth um, type -hmm. of story. And I thought, wait, who's the amateur sleuth? And then I thought, oh, my, (laughs) that's me, of course. Um, I think for me, I hadn't thought of her in that way because to me, I was thinking of her as just someone dealing with, you know, this story of a family in crisis. And because to me, that's what, you know, this is about and being the daughter at the center of this family in crisis, of course, she is going to try to make sense of things. And she is going to also, you know, try to figure out what happened to her father and along the pro- uh, along the process, you know, learn so much about her family and about herself. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's now that you say that, and as I've been talking, um, particularly this week to people who are you know, thinking about um, adapting it for film and TV and things like that. One of the things that they have brought up is that Mia is kind of like um, the TV show House MD, you know, who's the Mm -hmm. medical uh, brilliant, you know, and acerbic medical detectives that uh, Mia kind of could function in that kind of role because she is so acerbic and she is so curious, uh, but also kind of skeptical about so many things. So she is kind of a nice you know, detective role, as you say, in, in that way. So that's really, really fun for me. And I love that.
1: Yeah, it and must when- be so nice to to discover how your readers are, are finding things in your book that may- maybe were not your intentions.
0: Yeah, you know, and it's funny about the writerly intentions, right? Because so much of what I write, I write sort of scene by scene, not really thinking about what the ending's going to be or where it's all going to end up. That's just a, a writing process that I have. And one of the pleasures of that is that at the end, uh, when it all comes together, I find that there are so many things that people say in reviews or you know, when I'm talking to them, like I'm talking with you, or my editor, um, that I am discovering, yeah, you know, that's resonating with me. And I think that it must have been in the back of my mind, but I didn't do any of these things intentionally. Mm -hmm. So it's great to sort of kind of, it's almost like a little detective thing into the recesses of my own (laughs) mind, which is so fun, you know?
1: Well, I, I, I love that that's the way you think of it, and I think that's probably a, a gift for all writers to find what was in, in the interior of their mind that they couldn't quite give words to, which makes me think of lots of questions about um, verbalness in the, in the novel. But I, I, I'm struck by the fact that Mia's powers of deduction um, are matched with the fact that she can be, as you say, a cervic emotionally di- distant, sometimes pedantic, mm-hmm. um, and even detached and separated from from her family at times. And she she comes to grips with this as she reads her father's notes and diaries and that have descriptions of her as such. So she's positioned to be seemingly the opposite of her nonverbal brother Eugene the sibling Mm -hmm. who gets to be hyper-communicative. But what the novel so cleverly does is draw out their similarities, the ways in which Mm -hmm. their primary forms of communication can hamper their other means of thinking and feeling in the world. Can you discuss a little bit about how Mia has her own failures of emotional communication that perhaps not as dramatic as her brother draws her closer to Eugene's existence?
0: Yeah. Um, and I, I love the way that you are um, thinking about the juxtaposition of Eugene and Mia and, you know, um, what at first seems like the opposite sides of um, their verbalness uh, with her being hyperverbal and him being seemingly less so. Um, And one of the things that I have tried to keep in mind with respect to Mia, and this came with the first line, which is, we didn't call the police right away. So immediately, you know that she is telling us the story retrospectively from a point at, you know, at some point in the future, we don't know until the end when that point is and why she's telling us the story. And one of the things that I think you can see and hear in that line is just so much regret that she has about what could have been, what might have been, what she could have done and should have done differently. And and so I do think that her emotional reserve is one of these things, and also her being hyper-analytical. About everything that happened and and looking at everything from all sides is just her attempt to almost atone for some of the mistakes that she's made and that regret that she has, especially in uh, in relation to some of the assumptions that she made about her little brother Eugene, by virtue of the fact that he cannot speak. And she and how she's always thought of him as quote unquote nonverbal, meaning that he doesn't have words inside him, merely
1: because he cannot speak. Mm. So uh, to center in on Eugene, mm-hmm. who has Angelman's syndrome, mm. a, commu- a communicative disorder that is often mistaken for autism. In in Eugene's case, he uh, is nonverbal and has emotional outbursts. His primary caretaker is his father, who elected to stay home with him in support of his wife's career. Their relationship and Eugene's father's attempts to understand his son's means of communication and relative happiness are at the core of the novel's imagination of spoken language as miraculous but a limited form of human communication. How did Eugene come into being for you as a character? And did you research much into cases of Angelman syndrome? And what did that teach you about verbal and nonverbal communication?
0: Yeah. So Eugene has, um, you know, as I alluded to with respect to this short story that I wrote more than 10 years ago, Eugene has always um, been a character for me who, at the core of his existence, is defined by. The fact that he can't speak. I had actually thought of him as autistic and that's how I had always described him sort of in my mind, in the short story, all of that. And um, but I had always seen him as very happy on the outside and in the short story that was published about 10 years ago, Mia describes him as the happiest baby in the world um, because he just doesn't you know, cry and he's quick to laugh and he always has this beatific smile on his face. So when I was doing research for this particular novel, For Happiness Falls, one of the things that I knew that I wanted to explore is the, uh, the therapies that... Um, people with, who are non-speakers can do in order to learn how to communicate. Um, that's something that is really important to me for a variety of reasons that we can go into later. But in any case, when I was doing this research, one thing that struck me was that I kept on seeing this reference to Angelman syndrome. And so I sort of thought, I, I don't know what that is, so I'm going to look that up. And it was kind of like a gift from the writing gods which, you know, I'm not really into kismet and things like that, but, uh, <laughs> yeah. but for some reason- Were
1: you this... touched by the muse? <laughs>
0: yes, exactly. Yeah. No, it really was because I looked it up and I just thought, wait, what is this? Because the way that they described people who have Angelman syndrome was exactly how I had seen Eugene in my mind and had described him. So, you know, the um, having motor difficulties being non-speaking, also frequently misdiagnosed as solely having autism, Mm -hmm. and also um, uh, being unusually drawn to water, which does play a role in this (laughs) novel, in the story. And um, finally, this beatific smile, this persistent smile, that actually makes some people um, deem Angelman syndrome happiness syndrome. And apparently, you know, and I've seen this now because I've met so many of these um, Angelman syndrome, um, pe- uh, people with Angelman syndrome, is that they do have this persistent smile. They're quick to laugh. They seem very happy externally by all the outside markers of happiness. And so there are all these debates. Um, it's a genetic condition. And so there are genetic, quote-unquote, cures in the works right now in clinical studies. And there are all these debates in the community about, well, why do we really want to, quote-unquote, cure this? Because, you know, don't we say to our children, well, honey, all I want is for you to be happy. (laughs) If that's truly what we think, then why would we want to cure something where they seem so happy all the time Um, and make them into somebody like, you know, Mia, who is very curmudgeonly, Mm -hmm. uh, possibly seems kind of, you know, unhappy and depressed um, on the outside and stressed out as a lot of, you know, our teenagers are these days. And so it was so fascinating to me to sort of discover this. And, I, yeah, it just kind of fell into my lap and it was amazing.
1: So Mia discovers that her father is studying something called a happiness quotient. He's trying to understand the relative ways in which we experience happiness and to see if there's a way to quantify how that differs from person to person. His study is revealed as a way of trying to comprehend how a person without verbal communication might, in fact, as you've been talking about, be very happy. Society, of course, tends to view any visible disability as unhappiness. But people with Angelman's, as you've well described, tend to act in ways that are seem joyful. Yeah. Mia, who's hyperverbal, tends toward what her father sees as emotional distance and perhaps even depression. But I'm interested in this happiness quotient, which I believe has roots in real research that exists at a number of different universities. And I wonder whether your um, inquiry into this uh, helped to develop a sense of what you think of counts as quantifiable happiness.
0: Yeah, I have been... Obsessed with ideas of happiness for as long as I can remember. And I think a lot of that has has its roots in the fact that I um, immigrated from Korea to the U.S. as an 11-year-old in middle school. And back in Korea, we were so poor. My parents and I lived in one room of another family's house with no... Indoor plumbing, um, you know, we didn't have uh, a space for even books. Um, and so I had to borrow like one book at a time, um, that kind of thing. And so when we found out that we were coming to the U.S., we were told over and over again, it's like you won the lottery. Mm-hmm. And that idea that, you know, by virtue of this changed circumstance that we were going to be so happy, I was told that I was going to be happy. I was told that I was happy once I was here in the U.S., Mm -hmm. you know, and and indeed, like that way. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And I felt like, yeah, you know, I'm supposed to be happy because here we are. In the US, in this beautiful suburban house that my aunt has outside Baltimore, and I have my own bedroom for the first time. We have showers and toilets and, you know, all these things like color TVs and refrigerators that, you know, I wasn't aware of even um and so you know i should have been happy and yet i was completely miserable mm-hmm. and you know and a lot of that had to do with the fact that i no longer could speak the language you know so i went from feeling like a very confident and you know smart girl who was doing well in school all that kind of stuff to all of a sudden not speaking the language and realizing very quickly that we have this deeply seated assumption in all of us i think it certainly in our society that equates oral fluency with intelligence and mm-hmm. so therefore mm-hmm. since i couldn't speak even though i knew that like i was the same person and i still had the same thoughts within I felt like a Pobble, which is a Korean word meaning stupid person. And I felt stupid. I felt utterly helpless. And it was a deep shame that came and kind of took away my sense of competence and, you know, self-confidence. And so therefore, I was miserable. And I found myself thinking so much about objective versus subjective notions of happiness, what it means to be happy. And I studied philosophy in college and I remember doing one of the, these, you know, like philosophy of psychology or psychology of philosophy, you know, one of those kinds of classes and coming up across this lottery winner study that found that, um, People who had won the lottery and on the on the one hand. And on the other hand, people who were in accidents and um became paraplegic. A year after those life-defining moments, um, when studying their sort of life satisfaction and happiness levels, they found that there was no real discernible difference between the two groups, which <laughs> And then and I remember reading that and being like, you know what, that makes so much sense to me based on what I went through with my own, you know, quote unquote, like life uh, uh, lottery winning moment with the immigration to Mm -hmm. the U.S. And so I think that started my lifelong fascination. And I have these um, I have these notes and just like the father does. And I have these spreadsheets with all of these. Numbers. (laughs) numbers. So trying... <laughs> you
1: were really, you were trying to figure it out. Oh, that's yeah.
0: Yeah. And that's one of the reasons why I put it into this novel. I have some uh, thoughts about the relativity of happiness in my debut novel, uh, Miracle Creek. And um, I just, I wanted to expand on that here. And I remember thinking like, you know, that's what I do uh, when I don't understand something and when I want to understand it better and delve into it is to write it into my fiction and give that, you know, those same impulses to my characters who um, can really, you know, and I, I can spend like the next several years working through those ideas through my characters. And so I sort of it was natural for me to sort of put that into this character in this story. And sort of be able to work out that idea at the same time as figuring out, you know, what happened to the father at the same time and how those two things mesh together.
1: This novel manages to be suspenseful and emotionally gripping while being a full-on philosophical investigation of linguistics and forms of language. There's so many marvelous examples of how Mia and her linguist mother think through the meaningfulness of communication. One in particular is the idea of a native language and how there are examples of people reverting to the language of their upbringing after an accident, Mia wonders whether or not her mother would still be able to have an emotional relationship with her father if she reverted to Korean, a language that he has only a rudimentary knowledge of. How does that idea of a root language factor into the drama of Happiness Falls?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, that's actually, I think, in a footnote um, that Mia had talked about, this idea of people reverting back to a language. And that is kind of at the core of this novel because that is, of course, one of the questions for us is that um, Eugene presumably knows something about what happened to his missing father because he was with him when he went missing. And um, just because he can't speak, does that me- not mean that we can sort of pull out of him somehow, what happened to the father? And in doing that kind of investigative work, of course, the mother, who's um, a linguistic, a, a linguist, and also a Chomsky fan, um, is very much into this idea of uh, uh, nativism, which kind of talks about the fact that humans have this innate sort of language ability, this linguistic ability that's within their brain. And so, you know, she very much believes that um, Eugene does have words. He's not nonverbal. In fact, Mm -hmm. he's just merely non-speaking. And so we just have to figure out a non-speaking form of communication for him to communicate those words that are trapped within him. And um, so that's, yeah, it's such an interesting thing for me to sort of think about because of my own experiences you know as an immigrant and thinking about the fact that regardless of the form of language that the ideas are within there and it's just a matter of translating that into a form that can be you know used with other people to interact and to communicate ideas and You know things like that, and it's just really so important to me because not only did I go through this, you know, experience as an immigrant when I was 11 years old, but I, um, in the course of researching this particular novel, I did find that there are people like Eugene who have thoughts and who have very sophisticated ideas and who are so smart and who had been presumed to not um, have any words or thoughts or ideas by virtue of being non-speaking, but since then have actually um, learned how to communicate by using this letterboard form of communicating where they point to letters one by one and thereby spell out in a very painstaking way what happened. I figured
1: this, this must have been true to to your research, but I found it extraordinary.
0: Yes, it's really, really extraordinary. And in fact, um, it's so extraordinary to me and so moving because, um, you know, what I went through as an immigrant was very painful and it just really did a number on my, you know, um, just the way that I think about myself and made me so insecure and... Um, took away so much of my um, sense of self-confidence, like I talked about. And what was fascinating to me about finding these non-speakers is that what I went through, of course, was very limited. You know, it was just a few years and I eventually learned English. I knew that I would. And um, I was also had, during this period of transition time, I still had an outlet in Korean. Uh, whereas for these people like you, Choo, um, they actually have this lifelong condition. So how much more painful that must be for them? What I experienced, is nothing compared to what they experience on a daily basis, you know? And so it was really poignant for me to find that out. And so I've actually started teaching um. So I volunteer and I teach creative writing to a group of non-speakers and uh, most of whom have autism. They're mostly teenagers to about 25 or so. It is, it's just been kind of life-changing for me. Um, not only- amazing. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. It's really been such an eye-opener. One of the joys of uh, writing this novel has been actually been able to highlight that and showcase um, them and their work good morning america chose happiness falls as its september book club pick and one of the most amazing things that i've gotten to experience since the publication of the book has been that they've actually come down to the virginia area where i do this teaching and they actually take um, uh, one of our sessions and, you know, and they were just so touched and they showed them, you know, saying, uh, um, using this kind of letter by letter spelling methodology on national TV. And my students were just so thrilled, you know, that, that they're getting to tell sort of their story and tell people about their
1: existence. Oh, wow. That's amazing. The, uh, there's a minor point about language and alienation that has stayed with me about mm-hmm. Mia's mother's frustration with how bad the romanization of Korean is into <laughs> the English <laughs> phonetic system yeah, and how it alienates the speaker from her own language so that someone pronouncing a Korean word put into an English syllabary will inevitably mispronounce it. This has a double irony in that the syllabary for Korean hangul is considered the closest written to spoken language in existence. And I and I wonder if you could say a little bit about that.
0: Yeah. And you're totally right about hangul being um, very easy to sort of uh, learn to write because there are a certain number of sounds. Um, Some are vowels, some are consonants, and all you do is put them together, and then it just sounds exactly how it's written, you know, which is so not what happens in English, right? Mm -hmm. So,
1: no, (laughs) the very opposite. (laughs) Yes.
0: And so uh, I remember learning English in you know, middle school and sort of thinking, well, this isn't going to be too hard. All I have to do is just, you know, memorize some other uh, set of consonants and vowels, like how hard can it be? And then like just being confounded by the fact that you know, sometimes C makes a C sound and sometimes it makes a C sound and, then, and nobody could explain to me what the rules were or if there were rules, they were so complicated that there were like too many exemptions. And I just remember thinking, this is such a bizarre language. And um and so I think we, you know, make fun of that. Of course, we we make fun of it ourselves all the time when we're trying to teach our kids, you know. Um, phonics and things like that and sort of realizing how crazy some of these systems are. And in um, the romanization, that is a particular sort of thing that really upsets me because as somebody who relies on, you know, who did rely on sort of how things were spelled out in order to um, get by in English and to learn how to say certain things, in English, it really frustrated me the that and it, it it did alienate me from the language in so many ways. And even like when you and I were talking about, you know, how you were going to introduce the piece and you asked me, is it Jiyang? Because it's written as mm-hmm. J-E-O-N-G. That's sort of the yeah. formal romanization. And I said, No, it's actually Jung. And so it's it should to my mind be spelled maybe j-u-n-g um Mm -hmm. and you know something like um the korean word for uh grandmother which is harmony and so i sort of actually spelled it out in a way that makes sense to me h-a-r-h-r-m-o-n-e-e and that's how i spell harmony in the book but um, the real, you know, official romanization for harmony is H A L M E O N I, which a lot of people, you know, people who are American might look at and say, "Oh, so, so grandmother is Halmeoni or yep. yeah. yeah. And you, you're like, no, 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 that's not what it is.
1: So distant <laughs> from right, yes.
0: Absolutely. So, and even like Kim, you know, my last name—it's actually Kim in Korean, and or Kim um, or kimchi, you know, which is spelled kimchi, which is actually it's it's actually kimchi in Korean. So, you know, things like that 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 it, that make me wonder, like, why do we have this strange system that makes it hard for us to understand what each other is saying? And for, you know, for Americans or English speaking people to, you know, um, say things in Korean words that make them understandable to Koreans yeah. and vice ver- and vice versa. And so it's just been one of these frustrations of mine. And I chose to use a footnote to talk about that. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, I know this is a big issue in in Chinese as well, and and Pinyin uh, and other forms of romanization just continually failing the language, and, and 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 therefore failing both the the native speaker and the learner in a kind of unforgivable way.
0: Yeah, exactly. And I was talking to a Korean linguistics professor about this, and she was uh, an early reader for me in some ways. And um, and I was talking about this and she was telling me about the four different romanization systems and, you know, the failings of each. And, you know, we were talking about how, why this has happened. And the problem is, is that especially for Korean, because it is such a systematic kind of systematized written language with its very, very you know particular rules that you have to follow that's then you know uniformly applicable to all words they're trying to figure out a similar system for english and of course that's just not going to work because of the way that english you know is uh, is it, done
1: it's one by a giant exception yes exactly. <laughs> rather than a rule
0: <laughs> exactly so it's just you're trying to impose superimpose this order Onto a system that is not ordered in the same way.
1: Yeah, that's. Uh, I think that's so fascinating and such an interesting problem <laughs> for language learners and linguists, and fits rather beautifully with your novel's investigation of the ways in which language can fail us. One of my other. R- like favorite examples of language and linguistics is your use of Star Trek in the novel, which Mia and her family love. Uh, it's a show that might even be boiled down to attempts to communicate with other species who do not have the same language or life experiences. This ends up being a wonderful analogy to the family's attempt to understand their nonverbal son. One of my favorite examples is an episode called Darmok in which Captain Picard tries to understand a people whose language operates only in historically contingent analogies. And I'm wondering whether you yourself are a Star Trek fan and maybe why it was an influence for you here.
0: Yeah, I am a huge Star Trek fan and I'm so happy that you brought up Darmok because it's one of my favorite episodes and one that That's I so actually, great. Oh Yeah. And, and I watched it several times writing this book. Star Trek actually comes into play because it turns out that the mom, um, Hannah, uh, who's a Korean uh, immigrant, is a linguistics PhD. And um, back in her sort of undergrad days, she actually was a summer intern for the linguistics professor who is credited with. Actually, creating the Klingon and Vulcan languages, which I think is just so fascinating that somebody actually took uh, an actor's random, like grunting sounds, uh, this actor who was trying to approximate what he thought an alien would sound like, and then actually came up with a way of like putting rules and grammar and things into it to create a what is now a working language. Um, There are like something like 30 people who are fluent in Klingon throughout the world. (laughs) It's like unbelievable. And I actually um, reached out to some of them to ask some questions about like, how would Mia and her mom, you know, say this or that? Um, So it was really, really fun. And I mean, I think it's, of course, such a huge um, analogy to what's going on here. And in fact, a young Nia asks her mom at some point um she says hey you know how eugene makes these squeals sometimes he does these you know he makes these sensory sort of squealing noises that are kind of unpleasant and high-pitched and she says i won and she's also a musician and she has perfect pitch and she says i wonder if there's some way that we can do the same for Eugene's sounds the same way that this linguist did for this actor's grunts for, you know, um, for how a an alien would sound, you know, that kind of thing. And so the mom is just sort of fascinated by that. And of course, we later understand that the mom does think that Eugene has words. It's just that he doesn't know how to, you know, communicate them. Um, And she's looking for a way to do that. So, of course, this becomes a very poignant moment when she's like, yeah, you know, I feel the same way. And it becomes a point of them understanding that, you know, yes, there is something there. We just have to figure out the best way to reach him. We just mm-hmm. don't know yet, which is, of course, what happens in Darmok this episode. Yes. It's hard. It's like, I know this is a civilization that has language because they're communicating with each other. We just have no idea what their system is, you know? Mm-hmm.
1: And I know that this is this is a question for people who are fascinated with the idea that we might one day have to try and communicate with alien species ourselves, and that films and and novels pick up this idea of how to find a way of communication when you have no corresponding um, language system with which to to engage. And so it becomes such a wonderful point in the novel of acknowledging Eugene as someone who is communicating and and just communicating in a way that they fail to understand.
0: Yeah. And also, you know, intersecting that like science um, and more systematized um, logic based systems with Um, a more sort of quote-unquote mystic kind of a system um, because there's the Vulcan mind meld, which is a great way of communicating, of course. (laughs) And so, you know, the children, um, John and Mia, who are twins, when they're little, of course, they love exploring that, especially with each other being twins. And, you know, this strange twin connection that a lot of people talk about people having. And that also comes into play um, in the novel, too, And Mia kind of, like, asks a question of, hey, for those of you who think this is very woo-woo and, you know, not very scientific or rational, I just want to, you know, ask a question of, like, would you think that if this were um, more of a Western-sounding philosophy rather than an Eastern mysticism kind of philosophy? You know, and so she sort of thinks about... Um, the way that, the ways in which race and ethnicity and you know cultural context are all sort of wrapped up into our notions of logic and rationality and language.
1: Mm, that's beautifully said. This novel is, in, in many ways, a real indictment of the ways in which the criminal and judicial systems of justice misunderstand and abuse people with disabilities. Some of the most difficult and angering parts of the novel are your dramatization of these systems and their inability to interpret Eugene's behavior as anything other than dangerous. Does your legal background inform the story of the failing of these systems?
0: Yes. In the sense that I certainly did have experiences in my 20s when I was a lawyer um, working with clients who were misunderstood in the criminal justice system, in the family law system all of those types of systems too. And I had that in the back of my mind, but really what um, gave me insight into these more directly and more recently is um, the experience or are the experiences of my close friends who have children who, you know, are autistic or um, have other disabilities and who are getting bigger and, you know, and seeing things that are happening And becoming very worried about, um, you know, some of these meltdowns and sensory issues that their children are um, sort of exhibiting and how that might be misinterpreted by people and by the police, by Children's Protective Services, all of that sort of stuff. This is a constant worry for them. And in fact, my non-speaking students, yeah, my non-speaking students who are my creative writing students have told me that they had a hard time reading this book because this is at the core of their fears of what might
1: happen. I bet. Yeah. That's, oh yeah, that's extraordinary. And, And to have, to not have the abilities with spoken language to be able to defend yourself against those things and to become, in many ways, at the whim of uh, of a state that doesn't care to try and understand you.
0: Absolutely. So, you know, we have been seeing on some of these videos with everything that's been going on, um, how even when you do have words to explain Um, that can still result in, you know, these disconnects um, and brutality and, you know, violence and things that are just horrific. And so imagine if you don't even have that, you know, and on top of that, you have maybe some, you know, bodily functions and, you know, movements that you can't really control, especially at moments of great passion and excitement and you know all of the and trauma um and so imagine if you have to deal with all of those combined together how how upset you would be and also how um, upset you would be if you have a child like that, that you just never want them to be by themselves because, oh, yeah, you know, that yeah. might lead to such... I mean, I can't even think about it. So I'm having trouble actually like saying the words right now because it's just so upsetting.
1: Oh my goodness. Yes. Well, uh, lest I leave you on that, on that upsetting <laughs> note, I... I would love to ask if you would give some recommendations of things you've been reading recently and really loving.
0: Yeah, no, I love that so much. Thank you so much. Um, So some of I I wanted to recommend a couple of things that I was reading that were touchstones for me when I was writing this particular book. Um, So at the top of the list was um, Kazuo Ishiguro's Never Let Me Go. I think because of that regretful tone, that voice um, that so spoke to me, I probably read that at least a a little bit of it every day when I was uh, writing Happiness Falls. Um, Fascinating. There's another wonderful book called The Reason I Jump by, by
1: David Mitchell. Yeah.
0: Yes. Well, it's actually David Mitchell translated it.
1: Trans or trans? Yes, yes. Yeah. yeah. Yes.
0: Yes. Um, it is an amazing, amazing set of questions and answers, very short. And it is a then 13 year old Japanese boy's attempt to explain why he jumps um, and why he makes weird noises and why he can't speak, what he thinks. And that book is just so one, wonder- uh, so. Revelatory to me. I considered it kind of like a Bible kind of, you know, piece for, for this that whenever I had questions about anything or when I whenever I wanted to sort of try to understand how Eugene would be thinking about any of these things, I turned to that book quite often. Um, one that I'm reading right now that I am loving is North Woods by Daniel Mason. Um, especially because I'm in the middle of the woods right now (laughs) in Vermont. And, you know, he wrote in Massachusetts, but um, it's uh, it's the form is my favorite kind of book uh, form, which is linked stories. And it's a bunch of beautiful stories um, set all in one house in the middle of the woods throughout the ages. And so, you know, like the story of the person who um, built the house to all the way throughout, you know, all of the uh, occupants. So it's really, really wonderful and I highly recommend it. And then finally, um, Greek language by Hong Kong, which is just amazing. And it's about a two people a professor and a student um of greek lessons and it is just wonderful because one of them is losing the sense of sight and the other the student has lost the ability to speak mm-hmm. and of course hong kong you know of the vegetarian such an amazing uh is such an amazing novelist. And I just love this book. And it came out about a year ago or so.
1: And I forgot about its existence. And it's crazy that I haven't read it because I love The Vegetarian so much.
0: Yeah, it's really, really wonderful. And yeah, Greek Lessons, I think it was it came out in Korean a while ago. And Hogarth, my own publisher, just released it about a year ago. It's so beautiful. And I just that. And you can see why I would be drawn to it with, you know, characters who are losing their senses, trying to communicate, trying to connect in some way and, you know, and in their loss, actually discover each other. Um, It's really quite beautiful.
1: What a great recommendation. I'm I'm absolutely going to seek these out. I want to reread Why I Jump, which I found similar to you Revelatory, but I really can't recommend enough Happiness Falls. It's already going to be all over your social media feeds. It's all already a a giant hit, but I want to give it my own push because it's like three novels worth of thoughtfulness in one. And Angie, it's been such a, a treat to get to talk to you about it.
0: Oh, thank you so much, Chris. I am so excited. I'm so excited to listen to you know the recorded version of this later too, because I feel like you've given me so much to think about and so many amazing questions and insights that, you know, I actually haven't heard before. So it's really been amazing and what a gift for somebody like me to get to revisit the story and, you know, hear somebody like you who's so thoughtful about so many of the issues that are in the novel and themes and um, get to talk about it with you. So thank you so much.
1: Oh, thank you. That that really uh, touches me. Thank you so much. Well, that's all from me for now. My great thanks to Angie Kim for a fascinating and deeply thoughtful conversation about her latest novel, Happiness Falls. You can find links to purchase Happiness Falls and all Angie's excellent recommendations at the website, burnedbybooks.com. There you'll find all of our previous episodes, links to buy a podcast t-shirt, and ways to get in contact. As you listen, take a moment to rate the show on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts. Until next time, this has been Burned by Books.